Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Welcome back to the series of the European Association for Banking History. Today, we're going to talk about the monetary currency unions, a topic uh, that we will discuss at our next conference in uh, Sofia. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Thomas Meyer, a distinguished economist uh, who is currently working on a book, as I just learned, on the Latin uh, currency uh, union. Introducing him is a bit like uh, carrying water into a river, but uh, I will still uh, try to do it uh, with a few sentences. Thomas Meyer studied in uh, Germany at the University of Kiel, where he got his uh, PhD in uh, 1982. He spent almost a decade then uh, at the International Monetary Fund um, uh, in the United States, then joined the private sector. So he worked first for a decade uh, for Goldman Sachs before he joined Deutsche Bank in uh, 2002, where he eventually became our chief economist he then left uh, Deutsche Bank in 2012 to found the uh, Flossbach on Stock Research Institute, uh, which um, addresses important economic and monetary issues. Uh, Thomas Mayer has published numerous articles on international and European economic and uh, monetary issues in many journals. And uh, some of you may even have seen some of his uh, podcasts uh, on YouTube, uh, where you can listen to what he thinks about the future of Europe or inflation or other uh, important topics. But today we are going to focus on monetary unions. So first of all, welcome, Thomas. It's a pleasure having you here on our podcast. And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, these next 45 minutes together. Just to quickly introduce myself, I'm Hugo Banziger, I'm the chairman of the European Association for Banking History. And as I said, today we are going to uh, talk about uh, currency unions. I may start uh, our podcast with a simple question, Tom, what are currency unions and how have they come about and how many are there in the world? So maybe a good way to approach the subject. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Hugo, for inviting me for this podcast. It's a great pleasure uh, to speak uh, about uh, currency unions. Also in the context of monetary history, the book that I'm writing is actually sounds a bit ambitious, but it's a history of money. So I start out very early um, and go through time. I would say it's my history of money, you know, the way that I see it. And of course, currency unions are, are an important uh, issue in this. Uh, there's an interesting aspect to currency unions. When you uh, look at the history of money, there are two concepts of money. One is money as a means of exchange and store of value. We all know that. Economists have learned that. And, uh, you know, the early forms of money um, in this form uh, were commodity monies, so uh, metal, um, sometimes even other stuff like cattle or so. And uh, there is another form of money, and this is basically debt money. The state issues Debt. This goes back even to the high cultures of Babylonia, Mesopotamia, uh, who kept ledgers. Who owes to whom? And mostly, of course, people owe to the state. This has started a tradition where 
money is really a state issued non-redeemable liability. There is a, a German e economist by the name of Friedrich Knapp, who in 1905 published a book on the state money. He opens his book uh, with a sentence, money is what the state defines as money. This idea that he sort of put into into this book. Um, he picks, of course, up earlier ideas, but this is sort of the first comprehensive issue about uh, this. It's called charterism, state money. And the interesting thing is currency unions are basically in a conflict because you have... Uh, the state money system, which is the current money system, which is, has also been the money system uh, in earlier times, even uh, we can we, we will soon speak about it. Even the uh, you know commodity money systems were somewhat uh, sort of extended through fractional reserve banking into state money systems. But uh, the problem is that if money is a liability, a non-redeemable liability of the state. The state can manage it, of course, with a central bank, but if it is defined as such, currency unions are inherently contradictory because a currency union is a union of sovereign states which elect a common money. Now, that's a bit of a problem if you are in the state money system. This uh, um, inherent contradiction in the state money system has led over and over again in the history of currency unions to problems. There are famous currency unions before the European um, Economic and Monetary Union, such as the Latin Monetary Union, which existed in 1865 uh, to formally 1926, but De facto, it ended with World War I in 1914. So that's a famous one. There are forgotten ones. Um, many people will have forgotten the Ruble Union, which uh, lived just uh, for two years from 1991 to 1993 after the collapse of the Soviet Empire. They thought perhaps they could keep the ruble as a common currency, even when the different parts of the Soviet Union became independent. And this currency very quickly blew up, evaporated because of this conflict uh, between having uh, sovereign uh, states trying to come together under one uh, currency. And then, of course, we have our present uh, European Monetary Union, which also suffers from this conflict. Thomas, what's the driver to establish currency unions in the first place? I'd like to start with one that is actually slightly different than we can see how currency unions, informal currency unions can emerge in an evolutionary process. But these are currency unions where the state does not play a very big role. The gold standard of the 19th century is an interesting one. It has a little prehistory. It basically dates back to uh, 1717, when Isaac Newton, many of us know him as the preeminent physician who established the science of physics before Einstein. But Isaac Newton had a second career. He became master of the mint in the UK. And that meant basically he was in the tower uh, responsible of minting money. And it, uh, at that time, the UK was on a bimetal standard. So they had uh, silver coins and gold coins. 
And there was always a problem um, because silver and gold, the raw materials, prices fluctuated against each other. But what was minted on the coins were sort of nominal values. And at one point in 1717, Newton got it wrong. Um, he put a, a lower nominal value on the silver coin than the metal price of silver contained in this coin was. The consequence was, because of his miscalculation, that people bought up all the silver coins cheaply on the nominal value, melted them down into silver, and they disappeared. The UK ended up on the gold standard. This was also, by the way, one of the first applications of Gresham's Law. Some of you will remember Gresham's Law as the stipulation that bad money drives out good money. In this case, the, the gold coins were driving out the silver coins because uh, you could buy the silver coins at a discount uh, to the silver price. So the UK was on the gold standard. And then in the course of the 19th century, the UK emerged as a great trading power. And everyone who wanted to, to deal with the UK uh, basically was trying to attach his own currency towards the UK currency, was easier to have the same thing. And this was basically the emergence of the global 19th century gold standard, a commodity money standard. Now comes the Latin Monetary Union. And this is now a constructivist approach. Um, there was this idea, now we are writing the year 1865, where it started, but already before, there, there was this idea from some idealists. There was an economist and a politician by the name of uh, Félix Esquirou de Parieux. He had idealistic ideas of um, uniting Europe under French leadership. It should be continental Europe because uh, he had this idea that the continent, if united, could form a counterweight to this uh, overpowering power uh, of Britain. And he had an, uh, a good connection as a politician. He was a vice president of the state council, has a good connection to Napoleon III. And Napoleon III thought, that's a good idea. We can create a monetary union and leverage French political power through this monetary union over continental Europe. So in a sense, it was a, a currency union as an instrument, a device to, to gain political power. And for Napoleon III, this was in a way a bit of a redemption of all the mishaps of French history. There was always sort of an aspiration by France to um, sort of have some, some, some larger influence. And in this Latin monetary union that they founded, Germany, of course, didn't play a role. In 1865, there was no German state, but other important countries played a role. Belgium, which was an industrial country next uh, to France. Switzerland was also quite advanced in uh, economic development. So these were two partner of, uh, with, with industrial prowess, even uh, more industrial than France. And uh, then they had some other additions, which didn't fit in that well. Um, uh, Italy, uh, uh, there was also Greece came also into it. And uh, as I said before, this Latin monetary union suffered basically all the time from economic divergence. We had uh, highly industrialized countries like Belgium and, and Switzerland, coupled together with rather backward countries such as uh, Italy and even more so Greece. That created a problem. And then, of course, also the problem that in the state money system, money is always has always two functions. It is, as the economists have learned in school, a means of exchange and store of value on the one hand, but also um, 
means to finance the state, to finance state expenditures. And these two functions, um, a means of finance and a means uh, for trade, these two functions um, are always in a sense uh, uh, in, a, in, in, in conflict, and they are particularly in, in a conflict in a currency union of sovereign nations. And this was also what happened to the Latin Monetary Union. Thomas, can we go back to one thing that he said a bit earlier? So how this uh, Latin currency union uh, was created? You mentioned the uh, idea to extend uh, France's power and prestige into Europe. I always think so that people who participate have to see some benefit in it. So I would understand why Italy was interested in getting into the French sphere of influence because they're Uh, Savoy wanted to unite Italy for that. They needed French troops and eventually with the Resorgimenti, so France indirectly unified Italy and Italy became for a long time a French ally so that they were interested in how would uh, Belgium be interested or the Swiss so they, they had their independent history. What motivated them to join a union like this? This was a time when industrialization Uh, progressed. Uh, this was particularly important for Belgium and Switzerland. Italy had other um, ambitions. Also, uh, as you mentioned, the idea that uh, for, for relative agrarian countries to play a role in a club of industrial countries was kind of an, a promotion in a sense. But for the industrial countries, this was a, this was a time where you had standardization, industry standards. So there was a sense that business life, industrial production, almost everything improves if you define common standards. And the problem, quote unquote, with the evolutionary gold standard was that the uh, coins uh, in gold could be exchanged, but each of the coins were uh, minted somewhat differently. So you could not uh, really exchange uh, so one pound uh, against, let's say, one franc, as the composition was a bit different. Uh, so the idea was in the Latin Monetary Union, uh, we now norm the coins. So we say a gold coin has a certain amount, certain grams of, of gold need to be in there. And it was decided that 90% of the coin had to be of gold. It would have come natural uh, to do this with gold coins only. And you norm these, and then you have uh, one Belgian franc equals one French franc equals one Swiss franc, and so forth. And you could easily exchange. And this was, as I said, a, a time when in, in the industrial uh, production grew, trade grew. This would have facilitated things a lot. But There was, uh, especially France, pressed for bimetal standards. So silver should also be allowed because France had uh, quite a few silver coins in circulation. And the uh, states, of course, always gain seniorage, i.e. profits from uh, money creation because the coins, even the gold coins of the Latin Monetary Union that we are the currency union that we uh, just speak about, had, of course, only 90% of gold. So um, 10% were of a material of lower value. But of course, the nominal value was the gold value uh, stamped on the coin. Uh, with the silver money, there was even a bit less silver content, but the nominal value reflected the notional silver price. 
And uh, France and some others did not want to demonetize their silver coins because that would have uh, resulted in a realization of losses. Because let's say we have a silver coin denominated as one franc uh, nominal uh, worth silver coins. And then you look at the silver content and that was worth only um, 70 centimes. And when you withdraw the coins and melted them down, you would have to realize losses that didn't want to have that. Uh, that was one problem that it was a B might be metal standard, which created problems. And uh, um, uh, then there was another problem coming about. They did not regulate the issue of paper money. And uh, this created then the biggest problem that some countries no. then started to issue paper banknotes. Can we stay for, for a while yeah. on, on, on what you just said before? Though? You said though, at, at that time, it's always a technical issue to facilitate trade, if I understand you correctly. So to easily, uh, uh, to, to ease the flow of, mm -hmm. of coins between the various countries. And that would have then uh, facilitate uh, uh, international trade, which makes mm -hmm. perfect sense. So if I understand you correctly, so one, one drachme equaled in value one uh, Swiss franc, one Belgian franc, one French franc, one Italian lira. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct for the gold coins. Yeah. And, then, and then you had um, silver money. Um, uh, then, it, then it grew, it grew complicated. Uh, the silver, silver coins were used for smaller denomination trades because, of course, the gold coins, you, could, uh, uh, you had uh, sort of larger denominations and you could buy sort of uh, uh, certain things. But then you had also goods of lower prices and you, then you needed uh, fractions, so to speak, virtual fractions of the gold coins. And for that purposes, they introduced uh, silver coins. And uh, uh, there was then, uh, yeah, these things then start to unravel a bit. So they had two types of silver coins. On the one hand, current coins, which had a, a, a higher silver content. And um, now I, I don't know the English word for it, Scheidemünzen in German. That's a, a kind of another sort of uh, coin with a, a lower uh, uh, silver content. And this then created, of course, problems in uh, having the relations between the uh, silver coins of lower with lower silver content, which ideally should have been only used for domestic circulation, then the silver coins with a somewhat higher silver content which should have been also been able to be exchanged in the monetary union. And then the real core of the currency union or the, uh, uh, the coin union, uh, which was uh, the gold coins. Yeah, well, that's, that's so interesting what you're saying. You know, I remember as a teenager, when uh, um, at, as, a, as a child, I was used to see uh, Swiss francs, so the Swiss coins still with silver content. And I can't remember when it was, but I think it was in the early 70s when mm -hmm. the silver price spiked mm -hmm. and suddenly all the Swiss coins disappeared from the market. And <laughs> there's yes. the Swiss the Swiss government because people were, were buying them and then melting them down because their real value was higher than their notional value. And then Switzerland had to replace the... Um, uh, the, these um, these coins with pure nickel uh, currency or nickel coins, uh, which then had no silver whatsoever. But I remember distinctly yes. the, uh, yeah. the, the the five piece Swiss franc, which had a very silvery appearance because mm. of its silver content. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, a continuous problem, a problem Isaac Newton already dealt with and unsuccessfully. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I remember from, from other lectures and podcasts I heard is the exchange rate between gold and silver was around Napoleon's time, always somewhere around one entity of gold equals about 15 units, 15 units yeah, of exactly. silver. And then we had in the 19th century, I remember that from uh, one of the private bankers, Mr. Hench, who went spectacularly bust in the late 19th century with his silver operations, when new mines in, uh, in I think it was in America and in Asia, came on production silver mines and the price of silver dropped substantially. The notional value of the silver coins was higher than the real content of silver because silver became cheaper and cheaper. And that uh, created then uh, this collapse of um, the comptoir d'escompte or something like this, which is today the part of the BNP family group of banks in, in Paris. And they are still housed in one of the magnificent buildings. Yeah, continuous problem. As you say, you got one gram gold equals 15.5 gram silver. This was Newton's relationship and it continued to exist, even though the prices of gold and silver fluctuated. Um, at some point, there was more gold when the American gold mines produced or there was new silver coming onto the market and it caused a continuous problem with, with these uh, fixed uh, relationships that you had to stamp on the coins and uh, then people started to melt them down. This is where the uh, Cresham's law always was operating. Would you say if uh, the Latin currency union had, had just one metal standard, so if it hadn't been a bimetal uh, currency union but just had silver or gold, either or, that it would have survived these technical problems or were there other problems inherent that would have eventually uh, forced its dissolution? Um, when you sort of uh, look at the theory, yes, it should have survived. I think the biggest mistake they made was that um, uh, they allowed these uh, lower value silver coins, which uh, created uh, opportunities for a lot of arbitrage. And uh, the even bigger mistake was that they didn't ban the issue of paper money. And uh, if they had uh, made it clear that it would be only one gold coin, it would have operated theoretically from an economist's point of view. But then comes the political economics. They couldn't even, even go at the beginning uh, to this uh, monometal standard because there were vested interests. Mm-hmm. And that, that's always the problem. You can design these things very nicely from uh, the, the economist's desk and that arrives in the real world and then there are vested interests and all these things are diluted. And that yeah. happened also with the Latin Monetary Union. By the way, yeah. it also happens today. Could you tell us a bit more about what you alluded to with paper? Yeah. That's most interesting because we are again, yeah. or we are today in a time where quantitative easing is what all central banks do. So they create money. There are worries that, that there's too much money now in circulation. And uh, that may be an interesting lesson uh, from, from history. 
The problem, as I said, was that uh, money is always a private thing uh, on the one hand. So something that we use as citizens uh, for means of exchange and store of value and the state kind of dominates then this, the money and uses it as an uh, instrument of uh, to fund itself. And so when they established the uh, uh, currency union, there was no mention of paper money. Uh, they already had this issue with the silver coins. Paper money was not even mentioned. So what happened was that uh, states in uh, financial difficulties started to, to issue paper bank notes for domestic use. Uh, Italy started, of course, Italy started to issue paper money. I, theoretically, this uh, paper money was supposed to only be used uh, locally. But what then happened was that uh, Italian uh, traders bought with the paper banknotes that uh, the Italian state issued silver coins uh, of lower quality. As I said, there were two qualities, uh, German Courantmünzen, and the other one, the lower quality was Scheidemünzen with the lower silver content. So they bought it up and they shipped it to France and they uh, used it to pay unsuspecting French people with these uh, money. So they got bad money, so to speak, so that uh, there was a problem that the Italian paper money uh, production uh, ended up moving through these lower value silver coins uh, to France, which made the French, of course, uh, terribly irate because they ended up with money of lower quality. By the way, the Greeks did the same. And uh, uh, it's also interesting, already at the beginning, at the very beginning, the Catholic Church state was... Uh, admitted to uh, the Latin Monetary Union. That, that was actually the one who started the whole thing. And uh, they had a desperate need for money because they employed soldiers to, fend, to defend themselves against the Italians who wanted to get at, at their territory. So they issued a lot of low quality silver coins and swamped the union with that. So um, the French kicked them out. Um, and, and this problem solved itself, by the way, because the Italians uh, conquered this uh, uh, territory and left only the Vatican, as we know it today, left to the, to the uh -huh. States. So, so they disappeared again. This were the first one to, to go astray. The second one were the Italian themselves, who issued the paper money to fund themselves. And this diluted basically the quality of the French circulation. Uh, and the Greeks, they did it even worse. They were latecomers. They joined uh, only in the early 20th century, the Latin Monetary Union. And uh, you can uh, read some contemporary comments by economists saying it's completely uncomprehensible that Greece is allowed to join the Latin Monetary Union. They're not mm. fit for it. They had a bankruptcy just before. Um, nevertheless, uh, in order to extend the reach of the Latin Monetary Union, so the political aspirations dominated the economic uh, sense. So they were let in and they had from the beginning this problem that they couldn't cope uh, with the uh, standard produced uh, diluted. Uh, coins and uh, paper money, which made its way north. And then their membership was for a while suspended and uh, all the diluted money had to be recollected from the northern states and back to Greece. So the two countries, they are they're also today, again, in the economic uh, European monetary union, sort of a bit of problem bears. They were already at the Latin monetary unions, uh, the ones that caused a lot of problems. <laughs> That's really interesting. So that's basically inflationary monetary policy in its early forms. 
Yes, diluting the value of the money, that's a very, very old technique by the states to dilute the money to increase that seniorage. The Romans did it. The Romans actually sort of diluted the value of the denarius tremendously. This basically vanished. It started out as a good gold coin. It ended up as a pure copper coin. It's not quite clear in the Roman Empire where the causality went. Was it the dilution of money that caused Rome to degrade or was it degradation of Rome that caused the money to degrade? But it's always sort of correlated then with excessive financing needs of the state. Mm-hmm that can't be funded through taxes, then they dilute the money. As long as it is national money, it kind of uh, goes along with the economic descent of the state. In a currency union, you can externalize the problem to the others. Mm-hmm. You said that earlier on that formally the Latin currency union was ended in 1926, but mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, it ended at least the First World War. What happened exactly? In the First World War, the need for paper money became overwhelming. Uh, already before, as we just discussed, you know, some of the states couldn't cope with metal uh, money. But in the First World War, they needed lots of money to pay the soldiers who were, of course, no longer producing. You had those who remained at home, had to produce weapons, um, ammunition and so forth. And there was simply not enough metal money around. So everyone started to print uh, paper money. Some did more, some did less. uh, But in any sense, there was no longer an agreement uh, to um, adhere to the money issuance rules um, of the Latin Monetary Union. I remember in uh, Lombardia, where, where I worked for five years, a photo in the archives where in 1915, the entire cellar was stuffed with bags of Mm -hmm. French francs silver coins. Apparently, some French people refused to return their silver coins to the French treasury and take paper money, but shipped it uh, uh, clandestinely to Geneva. The Swiss franc uh, was still stable because Switzerland wasn't uh, part of the First World War. That was actually this huge amount of money that was flowing into Switzerland uh, is by and large, the, the beginning of private banking, because that, that money needs to be invested somehow. That's how this business model started. Mm, very interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Yes, because if you stayed home, uh, they uh, withdrew the silver coins, uh, could use them for other purposes and gave you paper money that was then rapidly inflated as the, uh, the, the spending of the state increased, but production, of course, declined. Um, and yeah. The result was was inflation. Maybe it's a, a good point to think a little bit. So what are the lessons? What can we learn from history from these Latin currency unions? Or is is any of that today relevant for our today's dialogue or for today's economic or monetary policy? I think it's hugely relevant. And um, um, when you study a little bit of economic history, you wonder why we keep repeating past mistakes. Um, When you look at the uh, present European um, Economic and Monetary Union, it was uh, pretty obvious that if you would uh, introduce a state money for sovereign states, you would have to have very, very strict controls over the money issuance and fiscal 
policy of these states. That was a big lesson from the Latin Monetary Union. And the, the fathers of EMU, especially sort of the Nordic one, they sort of wanted to prevent the uh, present European Economic and Monetary Union to take on similar features as the Latin Monetary Union. And uh, uh, originally, uh, even uh, Chancellor Kohl, who was uh, sort of responsible here in Germany for having a German agreement to, to EMU, without which it, EMU would never have started. Kohl, even in 1996, still said that, of course, we need political union. I don't think that he, he was not an economist, uh, but he was a historian. But if he didn't uh, realize it himself, his, his advisors have told him that uh, state money doesn't function if you have uh, sovereign states running it. And that's why they tried to put a legal framework on it, regulating money issuance uh, uh, in a totally independent central bank, forbidding states to bail out other states in financial difficulties so that there would be financial discipline, pacts, stability pact to limit the accumulation of debt, fiscal deficits, all basically lessons from the Latin Monetary Union, uh, which raided and had continuous problems because this unresolved conflict uh, of uh, money as a means of exchange and store of value on the one hand and as a means of funding government spending on the other hand, this unresolved conflict led to the degradation of money. They wanted to prevent it, but they couldn't. We have moved gradually from the intended either sort of political union that would uh, complement monetary union, then you have state money within a common state, that works, sometimes better, sometimes less good, or what you also could ha have a commodity money with sovereign states. This was sort of the 19th century gold standard. Then um, if you couldn't keep up with the standard, then you would kind of automatically uh, leave it. You would have paper money and your paper money would not be exchanged at uh, parity to the common money. But um, what we saw in EMU was uh, first the failure to complement the monetary union with a political union in a state money system. That was first, this did not work. And secondly, the framework to keep money separate from the state uh, and uh, to prevent that uh, common money would be used to fund national states that are members of the monetary union, this firewall was also broken. And presently, we have a bit of a situation which resembles a bit the Latin monetary union in its, in its later stages of development, where you have members, so national states, issuing money, first of all, issuing uh, bonds that are then monetized through the purchases uh, by the central bank. And that money then uh, flows from the states that have a particularly large need for such operations. They flow then to the more frugal one, to the north. In the Latin Monetary Union, it was the paper money, which was arbitraged and ended up then in the north. And at present, it is uh, central bank money that is created in the south, basically, and which then finds its way through the target to interbank payment system to the north. Perhaps for the listeners, if you allow me very briefly to explain uh, how this works, um, when a, an Italian 
Let's take Italy as the biggest example here. Greece would also apply Spain to some extent. But let's take Italy. If an Italian bank takes out a credit, it creates the bank money in its account. So the debtor has to sign a credit contract and then the money is created in his current account. Now, if the current account moves out of Italy, um, let's say to Germany, and the uh, Germans would not want to lend back the money to Italy, what then happens, it needs to be transferred together with a collateral, um, as the Germans, let's say, would not accept it. So what is then being uh, done is that the Italian bank would pledge some assets, obtain uh, central bank money, and send the deposit so the current account from Italy to Germany together with the central bank money. So it's a collateralized uh, money transfer. What then happens in the system is that the uh, Banca d'Italia, who is the, the extender of the central bank credit, gets a debit in the bank a target to ledger. So when the money flows uh, north, they get a debit and the Bundesbank, where the central bank money then arrives, gets a credit. And presently, you can see that uh, this process has created to a credit position of the Bundesbank versus the euro system of 1 trillion. So 1,000 billion has the mm -hmm. Bundesbank as credit. And the Italians and the Spaniards have 500 billion as debit. And in a sense, it resembles the paper money migration from uh, Italy and Greece at the time of the Latin Monetary Union to the north. This is extrapolating your thoughts. So, and this is maybe something less for the uh, economic historian, but for an economist who looks at. Uh, the future of monetary policy and what all these uh, steps of our governments mean. So in essence, you're saying that the euro will not be sustainable currency if these, um, how shall these mismatches and this indebtedness is, is not addressed. I think it probably won't won't work. And this is something that we can learn also from the Latin Monetary Union. And uh, people sort of have speculated that the weeks one would get out. Greece never left voluntarily the Latin Monetary Union. Italy didn't leave it either. But the Swiss drove forward restrictions even before it was formally dissolved, even before the World War One. They started to print paper money without any boundaries. The Swiss started to restrict what they would accept from others. So it's the stronger ones to whom weaker money, diluted money, money of less quality moves to. They give out uh, goods and services against money of lower quality. There comes a point when they say enough is enough. The Swiss said it even before World War I, and then finally World War I broke the camel's neck. And at some point, you would expect the recipients of the uh, southern money to say that enough is enough. This is, of course, highly political, but uh, history would suggest that this can't, can't go on forever. So in, in your words, uh, we're going to have an interesting debate in the northern countries which formed Europe, like Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, uh, the Finnish who will at one point possibly say enough is enough and uh, restrict the, the development of the Eurozone, as we have seen it for the last 10 years. Yes, if Germany were not Germany, the Bundesbank probably would already have restricted uh, accepting um, money transfers and closed the present target two system and said, okay, that's it. From here on, 
they would only accept now money that can be relent. So we'd only accept um, money flows into Germany when there is an, um, a co connecting uh, money flow out of Germany to keep the balance. But Germany being Germany, it's uh, presently politically not viable. And of course, uh, the others have uh, political leverage to keep the system open. But at some point, you know, countries uh, with uh, lesser political liabilities from history, such as the Netherlands, Netherlands or Finland or maybe Austria. So at some point they will probably say this is not a deal that suits us anymore. Well, I think we, there are lots of interesting things to talk about at our conference in Sofia in June 2022. Thomas, thank you so much for uh, this very interesting uh, podcast. Uh, I learned uh, quite a bit. I knew about the uh, Latin currency unit since as a as a young boy my grandfather gave me 10 swiss franc uh, gold piece uh, and in switzerland it's called freneli and i was always confused why the king leopold from belgium was on my freneli i could never understand <laughs> uh, understand that now i have the answer so it was the equivalent to a swiss franc uh, freneli and it was free in circulation I got a present from the Latin uh, currency unit and didn't even know about it as a young child. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.